So we're continuing today our study through the book of Exodus, and in particular these last few weeks through the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. We're on the fourth commandment today, which is the Sabbath commandment, which I have to say might be my favorite of the Ten Commandments. If I'm allowed to pick one favorite out of the ten, I know they're all equally important. But this might be my favorite one. There's something that is so interesting. It's the most fascinating. It's the most unique. And I think part of that is because it's the most countercultural of the Ten Commandments, at least in the society in which we live. You know, most people would agree today that murder is still wrong. Most people would agree, if you ask them, that, that stealing is wrong. Most people would probably even agree that lying and adultery are wrong, even if perhaps they indulge in those things. They would tell you morally those are, are wrong. But our society has nothing that corresponds to the Sabbath commandment. We have no idea of, of this pattern that the Lord has given to his people of six days of work followed by one day, a day of holy rest unto the Lord, in which they glorify God by resting. We have, we have nothing like that. We have something that looks similar on the outside. We have sort of the five and two pattern of five days of work followed by two days of, of what? It's not rest. Play, more work, different kinds of work, leisure. It, for most of us, the weekends are just as busy, if not more busy, than our weekdays. No one sets aside one day per week for pure rest, a holy rest, unto the Lord. So this is a fascinating command, and it's one that we need to hear from the Lord. But at the same time, it's not a simple command, and we'll, we'll see that, that it's far more intricate, it's far more interesting for us to read than simply to say, all there is to it is one day off per week. It's a far, far more interesting command than that. Now, let me just give a disclaimer. I want to read the passage in a moment, but let me <clears throat> give this one disclaimer about this commandment. It's important for us to remember that all ten of these commandments were given to Israel at a particular time and a particular place in redemptive history. And so, as we read these commands today, it's important for us to remember our particular time and our particular place in redemptive history as well. And that means as we read through not only the Ten Commandments, but as we read through all of the law that God gave to his people, we need to read it with a bit of sophistication in terms of how do we obey these commandments today. To simplify, we, we could think of all the sacrificial commands. Do we obey those today? Yes, we do. But not by offering sacrifices, but by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus, the final sacrifice. Yes, we obey it, but it looks much different in our context today in redemptive history than it would have for Israel. And uh, what we're going to get into later, a little bit today, but also next week, yes, we're doing two sermons on one commandment, do not despair. We'll get into next week, how, does it, how do we as believers in Christ in the new covenant now think about and obey the fourth commandment? It will be very interesting, I promise. So with that said, let me read the passage for us. Uh, open your Bibles or your bulletins to this passage, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And let me ask you to please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Heavenly Father, this is your holy, perfect, refreshing word for us. So we pray that you will be our teacher, that you will draw us near, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might truly hear as well as embrace your word to us, that we might listen, that we might see the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ and be drawn closer to him, trusting in him and his, in his perfect righteousness applied to all those who believe and have faith. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Bob Kaufman is a very talented and accomplished musician. He's one of those guys who can just sit down at a piano and just play whatever he hears in his mind. And, and he can play what he wants to play, and he can throw in extra little riffs, and he can get the melody and the harmony. He's a very, very skilled musician. He has limitless ability. But he tells that it is a learned skill. That he was in college at the time that he decided, by the time he graduated from college, he wanted to have this ability, to be able to sit down and play with confidence, without being tangled up in all the, the pages of the notes and the, the details. He said he would dedicate himself to practicing up to 10 hours a day. Practicing tempo, practicing how to use the pedals, different varieties of style, different dynamics that go into to making beautiful music. And at the end, 
he said he, when he had accomplished his goal, what happened was all of that detailed practice, all of the labor he put into that, it set him free. It set him free to be able to sit down at a piano and just make beautiful music and to be able to give glory to the Lord through the music that he played. But he said he wouldn't have been able to do that. He wouldn't have enjoyed that freedom to play music if he had not done his homework first of learning the details, of, of getting inside how the piano works and practicing the scales day by day, all the chords. I want to say today that as we study the Bible and as we particularly go back into this part of the Old Testament to read the Ten Commandments and to read the law that God gives, there's a sense in which what we're doing in this is doing our homework. The real goal, of course, for us as, as believers is to be able to live a life of freedom, a life of joy in the Lord, a life in which we are pursuing what is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever in everything that we do. And one of the ways that we go about doing that is first going back to do our homework. That is going to things like the Ten Commandments and studying these Ten Commandments. Not because the commandments themselves are the end, the end is being set free to live a life of glory to God. Now, just doing our homework, I know that's not the most inspiring analogy. But this is true, I believe, for anyone who, who is an artist in any artistic field. Right? If, if you're a painter, you need to know how your tools work, the different effects that can be gained through the different brushes, through different strokes. You need to know how colors combine the effect of different strokes and how you can lead the eye from one part of the painting to another. Or if it's photography, you need to know how the equipment works. Just simple things like, well, it's not so simple to me knowing how the, the f-stop works and the aperture and all these things. There's a time that you invest in doing the homework so that at the end, all that stuff becomes second nature. And you're just set free to make beautiful art, to, to create music, paintings, photography, dance, literature, whatever it is that you create, you have to learn the steps. And I believe there's a sense in which the Christian life itself, it's more art than science. It's living a life that, that glorifies God as we love God, as we love neighbor. We're studying the toolkit in these Ten Commandments, learning how the Christian life works with the goal that these will eventually become second nature to us, that we'll, we'll internalize these commands, that we'll learn these are things that glorify God. And then we'll be set free to live a life before him. And so when we look at this command today, I want to point us to verses 8 through 11, the fourth commandment. And I want to just simply walk through it and look at four things in this command. First, we see the command. Then we see, well, we'll go a little out of order, the command the rationale, the grace, and the fulfillment. Four things, the command, the rationale, the grace, and the fulfillment. Look at this command itself. The command is, can be summarized as learning to live in a rhythm of work and rest that's modeled after God himself. Here's the command in verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 8, excuse me. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. God is the God of time. He is Lord over time. He is Lord over your time. And in this command, he's giving us this pattern 
for how we are to use our time. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath and it is holy to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You shall not do any work. I want us to see that really the sum of this commandment is summarized right there. You shall not do any work on the seventh day, for it is a Sabbath holy to the Lord your God. He gives us the whole pattern here. Work and rest. Six days of work followed by one one day of rest. For many of us, we have a theology of work. We've talked about this before. We've been thoughtful in thinking through how we approach our our work, our vocations, whether that work that we do full-time is a ministry job or a secular job, and we try not to, to, to use that dichotomy because we don't believe in it, because we believe all work can be done to the glory of God. That there is no such thing as a purely secular field. All work can be glorifying to the Lord. But we've thought about work. We also need to have an equally robust theology of rest because that's what this commandment is about. That we are to have a day set aside for rest, and it is a rest unto the Lord. So we need to think theologically about taking a day off, about resting, how and why we do it. And here's one of the funniest things about this commandment, is that we think this seems so simple. It's a command to take a day off. How hard can that be? And yet it's terribly difficult. You read the commentaries there's all sorts of debate about what this means. There's all sorts of arguments about what sort of things are allowed and what things are not allowed. Certainly, if we go into the, some of the modern debates, we get all caught up in different types of work and what qualifies as work and what counts as rest. One commentary concluded their discussion simply by saying this, The question of how the Israelites were to keep the Sabbath has baffled interpreters for centuries, and it will not be answered here. Why is this so hard? (laughs) The commandment is to take a day in which you do not work. You rest unto the Lord. I think it just goes to show for us how countercultural this command really is. And it shows us something that, that... might be counterintuitive to us at first because I say this is so simple and yet for us in practice it's so difficult. That for many of us we have a terribly difficult time taking a day off, setting work aside, turning things off, not being available. The truth is most of us are, we fall over one of two problems, either, either we're lazy and we don't like work or we're workaholics. And we're driven by work. We're absorbed by our ambition. We don't like to rest. Neither of those things are healthy. Neither of those extremes are are glorifying to God. Neither are a healthy relationship with work or with our rest. Most of us truly need a command like this where God can simply lay out a pattern for us. Six days of work, good, hard, diligent, productive, beneficial work, followed by one day of rest. True, restorative, refreshing, God-honoring rest for our bodies and for our souls. There's four things that stand out to me in this command that, that describe how it works. First, it's holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Second, it is to the Lord God. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Third, it's a day you do no work. On it, you shall not do any work. And fourth, it's for the entire community. Right? Uh, You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. It's a holy day. It is to the Lord. It's a day characterized by no work for the entirety of the community. All the people are to have a day off. And I want to make sure we see this, that all these four things come together. They're all to be taken, not, not one by one, but to see it together and to recognize that there is this day is a special day. It's a Sabbath. It's a spiritual day, right? It's holy, and it's to the Lord God. I, I think most of us work with this idea in our mind that if there's a day off, that that's like a day for play, that we, we serve and honor the Lord six days and then one day to ourselves, it's the opposite. He's, well, it's not the opposite. He'd say all days are to the Lord, right? We do our work for the Lord. We do our rest for the Lord. So he's not giving them a pattern of six days you're productive and then one day you get to do whatever you want. He's saying six days you work, one day you rest, and it's holy, and it's to the Lord, it's no work, and it's for the entire community at once to be resting in the Lord. He says your rest is something that God takes great delight in because this is a spiritual day. Isn't that fantastic? Doesn't that make you want to be a Christian? That God commands a day of rest for the entire community in which you are to set aside the work that you are called to do, the good work that God has called you to do, but you you work and God says now, one day, the seventh day is to be a day that's holy and it's to the Lord and you rest. Don't, don't we hear that and we think, okay, God's telling us, here's this day. It's going to be holy. It's to the Lord. We're thinking, okay, there's going to be a lot to do to make this holy. Here's what you do. Rest. No work for anybody. It's a day of rest, and that is what makes it holy. That is how it is a day to the Lord. You see what this means? God is very pleased with you when you rest. Even on the day when you produce nothing at all, the day in which you do not earn your keep, God is pleased with you. He delights in that. That's because God delights in you for who you are, not for what you do. He is pleased with you because of who you are, not what you produce. So that the day of rest, when there's no work being done, that is the day that is holy to the Lord your God because God loves you. Now look at the rationale for it. And we're going to see later that when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy, he gives a different rationale. He gives one rationale in Exodus, and he gives it again in Deuteronomy, he says something different. But here's what he says in Exodus. It's here, it's verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. So what's the rationale for this pattern that God gives of six days of work followed by one day of rest? It's God's pattern. God is the one who set this pattern. In the creation week, he created all things. He worked six days doing good, productive, beneficial, God-glorifying work. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Now, God wasn't tired. 
We need a day of rest for our bodies because we get tired with our work. It's exhausting. We need rest. God doesn't need rest. God is not worn out by his work. And so he rested on the seventh day, not because he was weary and needed to recharge for another work week. He rested so that he could enjoy his creation, so that he could delight in what he had made, so that he could himself take glory and simply enjoy that which he had done. And he rested, of course, also to set a pattern because he set aside this day, marking it as a holy day. And so we take that rationale and we say, we rest now on the seventh day, not because we are tired, but because we're imitating the life of God. We are tired. If you're working, uh, if you're working hard, if you're working productively, you probably will be tired, but that's not the rationale. The rationale is this is a holy day, and we are learning to imitate the Lord. In Exodus 32, it's interesting, God is reiterating to the Israelites this Sabbath command. He gives it again. And it goes so far in Exodus 32 as to say that God rested on the seventh day and he was refreshed. God was refreshed. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't need to be refreshed, but he was. I think it tells us that specifically because it's giving us a pattern for our life. He's doing something to give us a model so that we can uh, imitate, so that we can be like him and work and rest as God works and as God rests. Now, I want to describe and help us to see the grace in this command because I believe, as we read it here, that this is meant to be a gracious command to Israel. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be gracious. And one of the unfortunate ironies over the centuries of this commandment is that so many times when we think of the Sabbath, we think only of restrictions and rules and burdens and laws, things we cannot do. Even today, I wonder if when you noticed that today's sermon was on the Sabbath, if, if maybe inwardly there was a little despair and thought, oh great, I'm going to walk out with a guilty conscience again because of hearing again what I'm not allowed to do on the Sabbath day all the things I've done that are wrong. And we have to admit that even within the Reformed tradition, oftentimes the Sabbath has become more of a burden than a gracious gift from the Lord as we fill it with too many duties. We pour on too many restrictions. We remember the story perhaps in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 12. This is where they had already gone when the Pharisees spied Jesus' disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath and they were eating a snack of some of the grain. And they accused them of breaking the Sabbath. They didn't accuse them of stealing. That's probably where we might go first, although they understood that you were allowed to take a certain amount from the edges. But they accused them of breaking the Sabbath. And, and we can study that passage and see that, that they thought if the disciples picked the grain to eat, they had harvested, which is work. And if they remove the outer husk to eat the kernel on the inside, ah, now that they have been, uh, what, what's it called, where you, you, you harvest and then you uh, winnow. You winnow the, the grain. So they're doing a full day's work here just to get this snack of harvesting and winnowing. And, and we see all of the, the grace and all of the glory of this command has already been lost. And it's simply devolved into this human tradition of what can you do and what can't you do. And if you do it wrong, we're going to get you. 
That attitude, obviously, well, in many ways, it continues even today. We don't have to look far to see it. Uh, Down at the Ronald Reagan Medical Center, you can go, and if you want to go up, you can use the Shabbat elevator. It's the Sabbath elevator because even today in the Jewish community, if you push a button on the Sabbath, you've broken the Sabbath. Because you have caused a light to go on, and to cause that light to go on, you have completed a circuit. And if you have completed a circuit, ah, you were, you were engaged in construction, completing something. And so you've broken the Sabbath. And so they have this elevator, and it goes up and down, stopping at each floor, and the doors open at every floor, whether it needs to or not, all day long. So you don't have to do anything. You just wait, and it'll eventually open. You get in, and you just wait till it's at your floor, and you get out. Where's the beauty of the Sabbath? Where's the grace that the Lord your God loves you, is gracious? He's not a harsh taskmaster. He commands his people to engage in a day of holy rest unto the Lord. I think there's a sense, we have to be aware of this in our own hearts, that any time we internally chafe against one of the Lord's commands that is meant to be gracious to us, That should be a warning light that goes on, that something is wrong. Why are we chafing against the Lord's instruction for us? We know the Lord is not wrong. He's gracious and loving. Something is wrong with ourselves. When we read this command again in the book of Deuteronomy, the command is tied to the fact that God redeemed the people out of slavery. So here in Exodus, it's tied to the pattern that God sets in the creation week. When we read it in Deuteronomy, it's tied to the fact that God has redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. Slaves don't get a day of rest, especially not in Egypt. We remember the story of Pharaoh telling the people they now had to make bricks and he was not going to give them any straw, but they had to continue to make the same number of bricks every day. Their load should in no way be lightened. And when Moses came to say, would you allow us to go a three days journey into the wilderness to worship the Lord our God, what did Pharaoh say? You're simply lazy. You're trying to take the people away from their work. You may not go. Pharaoh was a harsh taskmaster. God is a gracious covenant Lord. Slaves don't get days of rest. The Lord commands his people to take a day of rest. God is not like Pharaoh. He does not lay heavy burdens on his people that they cannot bear. He commands them to rest and to know that as they rest, in that rest, they belong to a good and gracious God who redeemed them, who bought them out of slavery, who brought them to himself. And God is not like Pharaoh. And God is not like your harsh boss, perhaps, at work who expects more than you can give. And for some of us, we have to remember God is not like you. Sometimes it's us who drives ourselves to work without ceasing. Oftentimes it's us that is the harshest critic of our own selves. It's us who won't permit ourselves to step aside, to get out of the harness for a day, to to restore our hearts and our souls and our bodies and to take time off. Sometimes it's not our boss, it's just ourselves. But in God's economy... You do not live like slaves. You live like sons. You live with this healthy rhythm that God gives of work and rest, patterned after the activity of God. 
In truth, all of God's commands are meant to be seen as gracious. In this one, we see it so clearly that this is a command that is meant to be gracious for us. And it's such a sad irony in so many ways when we find ourselves chafing under it. When we find ourselves not wanting to obey a good and a gracious command like this and say, ah, why do I have to take another day off? This is for the good of our bodies and the good of our souls. And it's interesting to see, here's, here's the final part of fulfillment, that this is a command that clearly foreshadows the gospel for us. That the Sabbath command foreshadows the gospel. Because the ability to really rest, or for many of us, the inability to truly rest, shows us something profound about ourselves. It shows us something profound about our need for Christ. Why is it so hard for us so often to set aside an entire day for rest? Many people find this command to be very difficult, even impossible. Doesn't God know how much there is to be done? How full our calendars are? How many things we're trying to juggle in our schedule to get everything done? And that shows us something about ourselves. Stephen Um says, Achievement is the alcohol of our time. Achievement is the alcohol of our times. It's our addiction. It's that which, which we feed constantly to, to validate ourselves. And it becomes more than, more than addiction. It becomes our idolatry. And I think that is particularly apt. I think that's particularly true for us, for our demographic. As a people, we are the ones who fall for this. And we begin to believe that our resume defines us. Our resume, it doesn't just define our work experience. It doesn't just define what we have done. We begin to feel like it defines our worth, who we are. And it's important to remember that the Bible says our work is good. Our work is good. It should be done in a God-honoring way, but it does not determine who we are. It does not determine the value that a person has so many times, isn't it true, we find it hard to stop working because we're, we believe we're defined by our work? That we're going to be measured by what we can produce? The stats on this are so telling. The numbers of vacation days that go unused in this country. The way that even when we're on vacation, we can't step away from our phones. Can't help but check our email. Can't help but see, does somebody need me? Am I wanted? Am I needed? Am I important? Are they suffering without me? Is that my, my full value? Even our children today are busier than ever before. Even children can find this command difficult, although we think they should have all the time in the world. And this goes far beyond simply being a hard worker. It goes far beyond simply having a good work ethic work, or in some cases just busyness, just toil, so easily in our culture becomes an idol for us. And, and the gods are vicious. They don't give days off. Only the true Lord gives days off. He is gracious. And so we need somebody to come to us, to step in and tell us this gracious word, that you are not defined by what you do. Your work is good. It has dignity. It's part of the image of God. We're designed to work, but we're not defined by work. 
such that if you don't work, if you lose your job or if, if something happens and you're not able to work, that you still have all the same dignity, all the same worth, all the same image of God. You're just as capable of fulfilling the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever because you're not defined by your work. You're defined by Christ. In Christ, when he looks at you, he does not see you as your work. Many of us need to practice taking time off simply because it's a very practical way to help us defeat these idols, to, def- to, to stop feeding them. Sometimes we find it hard to stop working because it's difficult for us to trust that someone else can be in charge and things won't fall apart. We've put ourselves on this pedestal, for those of us who maybe have a little bit of a, a uh, you know, we have to micromanage. We have a, a, a control complex. We find it hard to ever step away, to ever take our hands off the task at hand. We fear that we'll get behind. We fear that if we stop for a moment, others are going to get ahead. We're going to become irrelevant. We're not going to be leading in our fields. Sometimes what we need to do is to step away, to stop feeding the idol that our worth is determined by our work. Sometimes we need to lay in a hammock for a while because it's an exercise in faith. That we don't lose any value when we stop producing. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can possibly do is to take a nap. Remember that God loves you when you take a nap that you have dignity when you take a nap, that God is still in charge of everything important in the world and he never slumbers nor sleeps so we can. And it helps us then to intentionally fight against this achievement mentality that says we're only worth as much as our most recent achievement. You see, many of us so easily take a lot of pride in what we do. And we will cross this line from saying our our work is good and God-honoring to saying... I'm defined by my work, and I take pride in my work. But the word of the gospel is not about our work. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Because the gospel is by faith, not by work. The gospel is about receiving a gift, not earning a wage. This is why Paul says he refused to boast other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I must boast, I will boast in the Lord about what he has done. He never boasted about what he had done. It was all a gift to him. It's all a gift. We hate to receive gifts, don't we? To feel obligated back to somebody. To try to keep this tally sheet of, okay, he gave me this, I need to at some point re- reciprocate a gift of equal value, or equal worth. We hate to receive gifts. We always want to say, what can I do to help? What can I bring? 